0: new series of the BMJ Sexually Transmitted Infections podcast. My name is Fabiola Martin, I'm a cis female and I prefer the pronouns she and her. I am the BMJ STI podcast editor and a consultant physician in sexual health medicine. I also work as a senior research fellow at the School of Public Health at the University of Queensland here in Brisbane, Australia. Today we will focus on why healthcare services need to adapt and provide inclusive and non-discriminating services for people, independent of their gender or sexual preferences. It is a pleasure to welcome Dr. Jay Sevelius, Associate Professor at the University of California, San Francisco, and Dr. Graham Nielsen, Consultant Physician in Sexual Health Medicine in Brisbane, in Australia. Good morning and welcome Jay how is the weather in good old San Francisco?
1: Well unfortunately it's quite smoky here we've been having a lot of fires so uh, it's fire season it's an early start so our uh, respite for getting out in nature during shelter in place as you know Covid is has, has really run rampant in America so we're battling a few different things at once.
0: Yeah it's fire season here in Australia too but um, I'm sorry to hear about the smoke, and I guess going out is so important. Walking in nature is so important now. um I hope it improves very soon and um coming to Graham Graham, good morning. It is seven thirty a m and I hope not too early for a breezy dog.
2: No, not at all. Good morning
0: i I see that you are already in your clinic room, so well done you. <laughs>
2: Yes, a bit of a struggle at 5 a.m., but here we are.
0: Here we are. Well, before we dive into media res, Jay, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and your scope of work at UCSF?
1: Sure. Well, my uh, name is Jay Sevelyas. I prefer they, them pronouns, but she, her is okay, too. Uh, I, my training, my PhD is in clinical psychology, so I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, but I primarily do research uh, on, with uh, transgender and gender diverse populations, primarily around sexual health and HIV prevention and treatment. I'm based at the, uh, in the Department of Medicine at University of California, San Francisco, and I'm affiliated with the Center for AIDS Prevention Studies and the Center of Excellence for Transgender Health. Wow,
0: impressive. And uh, if I could follow up with Graham. Graham, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself, please?
2: Certainly. Uh, so I am a cis male, uh, prefer pronouns he, him. I am a sexual health physician working in both public and private practice. Um, I was responsible for the establishment of a new gender service at Royal Brisbane Women's Hospital here in Brisbane and that service has now been operating for over three years and um, more recently has really realised I think it's potential to be a statewide service and we'll talk more about that later I think.
0: Yes please, I, I can't wait. Um, thank you. Um, I'm very interested to discuss with you today why it is important to make sure patients can access healthcare services, which demonstrate that they understand the needs of individual people. I was inspired to do this podcast when I read about uh, Mr. Masha Jessen's horrific experiences in the New Yorker in June, 2020. He, a transgender man reported that he was repeatedly asked to do a pregnancy test before he could have a computer tomography scan, a CT scan for his broken jaw. Even though he explained that he was on testosterone, had had radical hysterectomy and um, the technician or doctor, it's not clear who it was, um, said that he needs a, C- a, a pregnancy test because his records say he is born female. And that triggers automatically an algorithm that requires a pregnancy test before being exposed to uh, radiation. I'm trying to imagine how uh, Mesha is trying to negotiate his case with a broken jaw. I know that this is distressing for patients, but as a doctor who looks after transgender people, um, I also feel embarrassed by these shortcomings of our healthcare services. So Graham, if I could start with you, um, clearly you saw the need for establishing a statewide service at um, Royal Brisbane, which is um, public sector, and what are your opinions about these incidences and what what um, effect do they have on how transgender people um, then access care in future?
2: Uh, well, I guess this is a really good example or a terrible example of how institutionalized discrimination and rigid authoritarian approaches to healthcare can very badly affect um, Uh, marginalised or minority populations, Um, the adherence to an algorithm such as you described um, is not unusual in the health system and perhaps it's actually becoming more common um, as uh, a lot of systems become formalised and um, uh, strictly adherent to requirements for accreditation, for example. Um, with regard to the service at the Royal Brisbane Women's Hospital um, I actually observed a number of changes to uh, sexual health services in Brisbane when I was living in Bangkok and probably the worst of those were um, linked Um, initially there was a uh, a small service for trans people at the sexual health clinic um, in Brisbane and um, We had a a major shutdown of sexual health services and um, really the public sector more broadly with the sacking of many, many staff. Uh, The sexual health service here lost about 70% of its staff in those changes. So um, observing from Bangkok, I thought, well, um, I'm sure the gay community, which is very well organized in Brisbane will Be effective in looking after itself but I thought from my experience with trans people internationally um, that the trans community in Brisbane would really be struggling to advocate um, for services for for the trans community and um, in the absence of a, a clinical champion it was pretty unlikely that the hospital or anyone in the health system was actually going to take up that challenge So I came back to Brisbane in 2013 with a pretty strong and passionate commitment to reverse that problem and re-establish a service for trans people in Brisbane. And I considered that it should happen at the hospital rather than the sexual health clinic so that it might become uh, entrenched in the hospital uh, structure. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a major struggle, but we were successful uh in obtaining funding to establish the service and um we had a narrow scope initially very uh, narrow diagnostic and assessment uh process and we're in the process of broadening that so that we can undertake follow-up care for patients Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah we've worked very hard to reverse the institutionalized or structural discrimination and perhaps i can talk about that further um later thank you
0: sure Sure. Um this is really fascinating how, um, as you said, some groups have established how they can defend themselves or fight the corner and some other groups need more support still because they're not acknowledged as such. Um, and um, thank you. Jay, may I ask you if you could tell us why non-responsive and rigid health service systems may directly or indirectly affect the healthcare outcome of transgender people?
1: Sure. I could take a stab at that. You know, I think it's it's incredibly important that there are trans specialty clinics, that there are clinics that are, that are geared toward trans people. And at the same time, I think it's incredibly important that we have broad education of our providers uh, about how to uh, provide trans-inclusive, trans-affirming care. Because in the example, you know, that you provided, it's like, Transgender people definitely should be able to access trans specialty clinics, and they should also be able to access emergency rooms when they need it Mm -hmm. without anticipating stigmatizing, traumatizing experiences, which is really what you described. And I think that Mm -hmm. the rigid, what happens when healthcare systems become so rigid is that cis-normativity or the idea that all people are cisgender gets baked into those algorithms. You know, healthcare systems are set up on the assumption that transgender people don't exist. And that is essentially what that person was being told when they were being told to um, take a pregnancy test, regardless of their gender identity, regardless regardless of what organs they had, regardless of whether or not it was um, important to their care. And so I think until we have um, healthcare providers that are educated about the broad range of how their patients can show up, both identity-wise and and in terms of how they present, um, what body parts they might have, um, then we are going to continue to see transgender people erased at institutional levels.
0: Yeah, you really explained this very well. And erase evokes for me certainly a very emotional reaction. And um, I can only imagine how scary it is when one experiences that, um, trying to seek uh, emergency, especially emergency healthcare for oneself or one's child. Graham, could you share with us any of your personal experiences as a healthcare professional who provides care for transgender people have you witnessed um, or heard stories of um, your patients suffering directly as a consequence of non-responsive uh, providers? Some of my patients, for example, refuse to attend their appointments in large hospitals as Jay just, just um, alluded to. So because these are not transgender services, these are let's like, say, cardiologists or pulmonary, pulmonary departments, different diabetic clinics. Uh, because of fear of being addressed by their natal name or being misgendered, and they understand that well, they feel that no one understands that this misnaming, misgendering can really trigger um, their gender dysphoria, um, which they're trying to, you know, address uh, with gender affirming therapy. Um, as a result, of course, they miss out on healthcare services that they need and entitled to have. Um, they also report, report really kind of um, services that they need as humans. Um, they can't go to these hospitals because, as a transgender man or woman or non-binary person, there is no toilet they could access. So um, I'm always, you know, kind of shocked when I hear these stories. Um, and Graham, have you have you come across this? I'm I'm a, I'm, a sh- I'm sure you have because you were trying to set up the services.
2: I have many experiences that are relevant. Um, I guess probably the top of that list was the complete absence of a trans service in Brisbane uh, for several years uh, at a time when trans services were available in a number of provincial towns in Queensland. So the state capital and the quaternary um, referral hospital for Queensland had no service at all. So trans people, as as you said, Jay, uh, didn't exist. There was no requirement or need for such a service. And I fought very hard to uh, make sure that it was understood that service was in fact essential. Um, There are many examples of such discrimination. I guess the most obvious one is something you alluded to there, uh, Fabiola, uh, in terms of um, gender markers and legal identity documents. Um, Until very recently, it was very, very difficult to uh, get a patient's preferred name into the medical record system at the hospital, and um, that's only changed just recently. Likewise, changing uh, identity documents from birth certificate and uh, more broadly, uh, that's also very difficult still in Queensland where... Um, you are able to change uh, your sex marker on your birth certificate, um, sorry, your name on your birth certificate, but not your sex. Um, To be able to change your sex on your birth certificate, um, you actually require surgery to reproductive organs, is how the legislation reads. So there there are major challenges such as those. And then I guess very much more specific, I'm reminded of a number of referrals I've made to the hospital here uh, for trans men um, seeking uh, top surgery and um, they've all been rejected and the and I've taken that to the highest level and the glib response that I've received from the hospital is that that service does not exist again if you like a a complete erasure of um, the needs of trans people Um, There are many, many other examples. Um, I guess the final one that I would mention is uh, other specialties in the hospital um, where a patient has, for example, uh, a renal condition. When the uh, specialist physician discovers that the patient is on testosterone, um, um, it is not an unusual experience for me to have the patient's testosterone therapy ceased without any consultation with me um on the basis that well this um strange thing you're doing for this strange patient must be the thing that's exacerbating their renal function um of course that's not true but because the patient is different in some way um their difference is also erased
0: Mm -hmm. wow that is um that must be well confusing and and also distressing physically distressing i just i just wonder Jay, when, we, when I looked at your you know, research outcome and saw your focus on gender affirmation, I also came across um, this phrase healthcare or this term healthcare empowerment. And um, I wonder if you could explain to um, our audience's gender affirmation on one side, but also what is healthcare empowerment? How does this work? And um, how does it actually improve
1: the health of transgender people. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yes, so gender affirmation is a concept that grounds the majority of my research. And, you know, gender affirmation has come to be understood to primarily apply to medical procedures like um, gender affirming hormone therapy, gender affirming surgeries, but there's also social aspects to gender affirmation that are really important that. Uh, um, Graham was mentioning around, um, you know, being addressed by the correct name, being addressed by the correct pronoun in healthcare settings, um, and having social interactions be affirming of a person's gender. And then there's the legal uh, gender affirmation, which Graham also alluded to, where um, people are able to get their documentation changed to reflect their accurate gender. And, um, things like driver's licenses and and things like that to have the correct, their correct name. Um, I primarily am interested in social gender affirmation and how that um, improves health outcomes, how that um, uh, moderates the relationship between uh, transphobia and negative health outcomes. And social gender affirmation, that's a big part of having positive interactions in healthcare settings is having a provider who is willing to understand your identity, willing to ca- call you by your um, preferred name, whether that's your legal name or not, um, and you know, address you by the correct pronouns. Um, I would even put in you know, the category of social gender affirmation, um, just some of those nonverbal cues that we take for granted a lot of times in our, um, in our interactions that can be either gender affirming or gender disaffirming. Healthcare empowerment um, is actually a, a construct that my mentor, Valerie Johnson, um, has pioneered. And there are, it, it's really about being empowered in one's healthcare. So, working collaboratively with your provider to make decisions, being informed about your healthcare, making proactive choices, um, and, and really feeling um, that you have some sort of agency in your healthcare and being willing to assert that agency. And as we know, some people really uh, don't feel empowered in their healthcare, and that's reflected in in how they participate in their healthcare or don't participate in their healthcare. And we found that the combination of gender affirmation and healthcare empowerment among transgender women in particular, who I work a lot with, Predicts better health outcomes, such as viral suppression mm-hmm. among transgender women living with HIV. And another way that I think about healthcare empowerment—that you know we haven't necessarily studied as formally—but I do build into the intervention programs that I um, that I build and test—is um, around stigma resilience. So, you know, we were talking about healthcare avoidance and how common that is. Um, not only because of one's personal experiences of stigma in healthcare settings, but just the anticipation of stigma. You know, hearing stories like the one that you mentioned of the broken jaw. Um, you know, a transgender person who hasn't ever had to go to the emergency room might say, "If I ever have to go to the emergency room, I I probably just won't go." You know, and 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 we mm-hmm. certainly have known of cases like that. But when one is empowered in one's healthcare, and one can anticipate stigma and still go to those healthcare appointments that they need to have, um, maybe with some preparation around, this is what I'm going to do if I get called by the wrong name. This is how I'm going to assert my right to you know, be addressed the way that I choose. This is how I'm going to come out to my provider. Or in some cases, this is how I'm not going to come out to my provider. I'm going to pass a cisgender in this interaction because that helps me feel safer, even though it's disaffirming and it's still not an ideal interaction. um, One of the things that I think is really important is that we help transgender people navigate the systems that currently exist. We know, I mean, thank goodness for doctors like Graham who are changing the landscape of healthcare and creating clinics. But we also know that the entire system is not gonna be changed overnight. And in fact, in some ways, it's actually changing for the worse. Um, with some of the algorithms that you mentioned, so how do we help transgender people be more resilient in their healthcare? How do we empower transgender people in healthcare um, so that they can navigate the systems and get the care that they that they need? Maybe it's not the ideal care that they deserve, but you know, having access to the treatment that that people really need.
0: I understand. So what you're saying what we are saying is that you know we need education for the healthcare providers to be to provide more flexible inclusive and embracing healthcare services but we also need to support and educate together with a a um, framework of healthcare empowerment our patients To make them, to allow them to be able to access the um, healthcare they're entitled to when they need it, when the body needs it or their mental health needs it. And sometimes we need to meander rather than go the direct path to be able to access that. And I think that is actually really empowering to hear for me because it will definitely change my practice to ask my patients, well, how would you like this encounter to happen? i'm I'm going to refer you to this uh, department, but how would it would you like me to um, well, write the letter or introduce you? and how would you like the encounter to to work out for you? Let's practice a little bit. I think I can definitely um, look into that. That's really helpful. Thank you. Um, Graham, Looking ahead, what has already been implemented, or which small steps could we take to make healthcare provision safer and more appropriate for all people in our healthcare settings? I know that you have, you know, explained us a little bit about the the overall um, struggles or or championship that you had to, you and your team had to take forward to implement what you're doing. But, you know, if you think about other departments that are not necessarily transgender focused, but want to be inclusive, which little steps can they take to make uh, their services more inclusive?
2: I suppose I could describe this as something of a war of attrition. Uh, The, you know, once you've done the macro step of establishing a service such as the gender service at the hospital, Um, You encountered many of the more micro things that you've described around challenges with names, um, challenges with recording gender appropriately in the record system, but also challenges in terms of um, even at most simple, uh, my referral of a patient to have some blood tests done. From the day the service was established I was dreading how people would be treated uh, down in the phlebotomy service. So we um, made a special effort to meet with the staff of the service, uh, explain the nature of our clientele and get a commitment from them that they would uh, honour the the corrected names which we often had to do on uh, pathology requests uh, to get the name right and the gender right and that the patients could actually have a a smooth process when they went down to have blood tests done. To date, that has been completely successful. We've had no complaints at all, other than a very subtle um, feedback that one of the staff seemed a bit uncomfortable. But in terms of you know, serious, more serious stigmatization and discrimination, we've had nothing from the phlebotomy service. I guess the, I described the narrowness of the scope of our service. So that too is something we're chipping away at. Um, It means that um, when I finally get to see a patient and give their initial prescription for uh, gender-affirming treatment, that's really the end of the road for most of the patients. Thereafter, they are discharged to their GP, uh, many of whom probably um, have their first encounter with the patient uh, whom they've referred to the service. Um, So those GPs need a lot of support um, to be able to Uh, care for their patients appropriately Um, and that's really one of the the major goals of our service is to broaden the number of trans-friendly GPs in the community and to ensure that they're supported. But certainly I think it is wrong that our service is unable to provide direct follow-up care in the early stages of treatment. Um, I don't know of any other service that would run in such a way mm-hmm. and we're working very hard to expand our, expand our scope mm-hmm. on that front.
0: Great, so um, regular follow-up for patients with their specialists, um, easy access if there is a problem or if um, something's not working, as we know sometimes things don't work out the way we want it and we need to adjust. But we need them um, instead of having a new referral, we should be able to access our our specialist. And then um, what you're saying is also direct communication, again, education, direct communication, and support for other services where they may be totally out of their depth when it comes to what is actually the right thing to do, what is accepted, what what do people want? And that's not often readily available to other services so going there and talking to them and having face-to-face conversations can facilitate changes. Um, Micro changes make services more accessible and, and user-friendly.
2: Correct. We're somewhat blessed at the hospital uh, in that we uh, in the emergency department we actually have a transgender nurse who's done a great deal of adv- advocacy and education of the staff in the emergency. Uh, department. So um, a lot of the things that you've described previously hopefully will not occur or at least occur less frequently in the emergency department.
0: Mm. Yeah, that that would be great. Jay, may I put, a, put the same question to you? So in California or San Francisco, what is being done? Have you seen examples of these changes? And you you also mentioned briefly that things are maybe reverting a little bit and... Again, uh, there are many articles in the New Yorker that I have read about um, um, laws being passed that may not be as supportive of transgender people as they should be. But in in the healthcare settings and um, practical examples, have you come across things that make life easier for transgender people?
1: Absolutely. You know, I mean, fortunately, the legislation that... Trump tried to advance where, um, that would uh, allow for discrimination against transgender people based on uh, religious freedoms, that was um, that was not passed, thank goodness. Um, so, you know, uh, the fact that we even have the, this type of legislation being introduced in our country right now is appalling. Um, but uh, at the same time, um, you know, there, there has been some hopeful advances, um, on a, you know, on a country level, but here in California, um, you know, some of the examples, um, that I think they're, they're, they're very small things, but it's amazing how resistant systems can be to even small changes. And, uh, one of the things that I think, um, is really, really helpful, both in research and clinical settings, is determining sex and gender uh, using a two-step question. So you ask the person first, um, you know, what is your gender identity? And then you ask, what sex were you assigned at birth? And that gives you two pieces of information to determine whether a person has a trans identity. And then also what sex they were assigned at birth gives you some information about um possibly their anatomy but not necessarily as in the case that you uh, mentioned earlier of the person asking uh, the person accessing the emergency room which is why you know many transgender providers here in California advocate for using an organ inventory as opposed to making assumptions about what anatomy a person has you create an organ inventory that um, you know, of the organs that are needed to provide the type that you need to know about in order to provide the type of care that um, mm-hmm. that you're providing. And, you know, if, if algorithms were based on things like an organ inventory, then it might be appropriate to ask a person, even a transgender man, to take a pregnancy test if they had a uterus and maybe were actively having sex with cisgender men. Um, that may be an appropriate... Um, response to the type of care that that person needs you know this would also be helpful for cisgender women who ha- uh, have had radical hysterectomies um, it's an inappropriate to give a pregnancy test to someone who has had a radical hysterectomy regardless of their gender identity so being able to do something like an organ inventory actually allows you to tailor the care to the person regardless of what their identity is and makes for better care for everyone. Totally
0: agree. And it's so pragmatic, isn't it? And um, it could be an algorithm, couldn't it? Mm -hmm.
1: True, (laughs) yes, absolutely.
0: (laughs) So I think 40 minutes into our interview or 35 minutes, and we have managed not to mention COVID too much. I think we mentioned it maybe (laughs) once at the beginning when I asked about the weather. But hey, we here. We are, and it. Um, let's not leave it out. It is affecting us all. Um, so we have had about six months of what I could call acute health telehealth experiences. Without training or prior practice, a lot of health practitioners needed to see their patients through remote access, such as telephone or video conferencing. And um, what have we, you know, gained or lost through this? very much needed rapid modernization it was you know there was actually i'm really glad that we had those options um but what going forward i mean um i do hope there is a future with a different way of uh, you know living with COVID. it won't go away and we will may have other viruses but i do hope that these six months have taught us so much but what do we want to keep from from this health Advances and modernizations, and and what do we want to get rid of again? And um, do do these changes have positive or negative effects on the healthcare we provide for our transgender people? And Jay, if I could start with you, um,
1: if you have, if you could share your thoughts or observations, that would be fantastic. Sure. Yeah. Some of the observations um, that I've made in the work that we've been doing have, you know, where telehealth has had both a positive and a negative impact on our communities. Um, There are some folks who really like having telehealth options. It prevents them from having to uh, travel on public transportation where they might encounter harassment or sit in waiting rooms with other patients that might not be respectful. They get to just interact with their provider. Hopefully it's a provider that they trust. And um, really, kind of limit the the exposure that they have to other aspects of the healthcare setting that is not as um, supportive. Perhaps um, there have been some, you know, real issues with people who are on injectable hormones and are not um, trained to provide their own injections, and so they've had trouble um, accessing hormones or um, self-administering their hormones, and they've so they've had gaps in their hormone therapies, which can have side effects and negative consequences. Um, You know, the other other thing is that for our communities who are more marginalized, um, have lower education levels, lower uh, technology literacy, um, it's been very difficult for them to access telehealth platforms. So some of our communities have never used Zoom before or any kind of video um, chat, maybe beyond like, facebook messenger or you know yeah. those kinds of more social platforms um and so we have seen some folks who have just sort of been shut out of um the whole system the telehealth system but also um be, ha- having access to sort of the the cutting edge information and social support that we've seen really boom during covid where social uh, social support groups have gone online Um, You know, neighborhood information groups about COVID, you know, you can join Zoom groups about that. And, you know, so some of the more marginalized folks in our communities have sort of been shut out of those, um, you know, of those groups. But there are other folks who feel like this has been a really amazing experiment in showing that, like, a, a lot of transgender health can be done remotely. And so for folks who live in more rural areas and can't commute to the urban centers to where the transgender specialty clinics are necessarily, can get a lot of the um, prep work for their surgery done remotely or can um, do some initial assessments remotely, whereas previously um, it was sort of insisted upon that they come in person, which was expensive and time-consuming. So I think there's been pros and cons, and, and I think it's, it has been a really amazing learning opportunity.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I do agree with you and my personal experience has been that um, the f- initial consultation via phone, I find it really difficult to remember the patient and remember the story because I don't have a face to associate it with, but video conferencing works actually really well and yes, it saves a lot of money and um, a lot of uh, time taking time off work, etc., for patients who live far away. Graham, I think uh, you have a good story to tell us about uh, tele conferencing because Royal Brisbane has been offering this for a while, but uh, the pandemic has uh, been a bit of a catalyst.
2: Absolutely. Um, the experience at the gender service has been very, very positive with, with telehealth. Um, and in fact, um, I think a lot of things have happened for the service that perhaps would not have happened without COVID. Um, or at least taken maybe years to be uh, a reality. Um, what we've seen happen um, is that, uh, you know, we, we did have a mandate to have a statewide service, but that was quite challenging for obvious reasons. Queensland is a huge state. Um, um, you know, you compare Australia with the United States and uh, the state of Queensland, I think, would cover a very large proportion of the land area of the united states so the distances are vast Um, the costs are also huge for patients to come down to brisbane from rural areas and so uh, telehealth has made a huge difference in terms of access for services Um, we uh, in fact recently i did my first telehealth consultation with a patient in another state, um, an Aboriginal patient, Indigenous patient, um, with an interpreter because they didn't speak English. Um, So I think that's a a really good example of a service that would not have been provided without COVID's uh, impetus for telehealth. We are now seeing quite a a palpable increase in the proportion of um, Indigenous patients accessing the service both directly, but also, uh, much more importantly, via telehealth. Um, And so I think, um, looking to the future, uh, we're very likely to maintain the telehealth option so that patients um, in rural areas, uh, particularly Indigenous uh, patients who probably would never be able to make it down to Brisbane for a consultation, um, and, um, you know, will be able to provide services, I would think, indefinitely through that medium
0: it's it's unbelievable isn't it i mean if you think about transgender people b- being a marginalized group or disenfranchised group but then the indigenous population of australia within the transgender group to be able to access them and to provide them a friendly service is is um is is fantastic so I do hope you write this up, Graham. Um, <laughs> uh, definitely. To comment on
2: it. Um, I don't know if I'll be writing it up, but you're right. There, there is another, um, perhaps obvious, but uh, I'd like to name it. Um, in terms of stigma and discrimination, um, indigenous trans patients, obviously, experience a, a, a major um, phenomenon about intersectionality. So being indigenous in Australia, Um, which continues to be a very racist nation, um, notwithstanding significant improvements in reducing racism in Australia, but to be a trans um, indigenous person in Australia is really a a double jeopardy in terms of being able to access services and to to avoid the experiences of stigma and discrimination.
0: Yes, no thank you, thank you for pointing that out because um, and and telehealth is now reaching out interstate, which is which is fantastic. So, um, Jay Graham, we're coming to the end of our podcast. Graham, before you go and see your first patient of the day, um, is there anything you would like to add to our conversation? Have we have I have I missed anything?
2: I'd, I'd like to mention one thing, which is perhaps a bit personal for me, <clears throat> but I I actually see caring for trans patients is a major privilege in my clinical work. The vast majority of our uh, colleagues, I think, um, never have cause to uh, question their own gender identity or sexuality. And um, of course, our trans patients um, have been living the questioning of their identity and exploring gender identity issues most of their lives. Um, For me, as a cis man, uh, medical practitioner, uh, working predominantly with trans patients now. Um, this is an extraordinary experience for me, both personally and clinically, to learn the stories of trans people uh, day in and day out and to really, um, you know, see through a window which is not open for most of our colleagues, um, partly because they're very blinkered and won't open it. But, um, you know, is that, ha- having that experience, I think, is an extraordinary privilege for me as a practitioner.
0: Mm, yes. No. Thank you for saying that because that's that's what I experience when I see our patients in sexual health, probably in every type of healthcare provision. We are so privileged to hear patients' stories that, that, and to experience that trust. Um, but I must say, transgender healthcare provision has uh, pushed my own practice and my own personal experience of being a physician to a higher level and um, has posed questions that um, I like to ask myself and that it helps me to to develop personally as well as prof- professionally so thank you for pointing that out. And Jay, um, our fantastic scientist and researcher and educator um, and community advocate, I've, I've done my homework, um, is there anything you would like to add? What else would you like to um, Tell our audiences before we say goodbye.
1: I you I really appreciated what you shared, Graham, and you know just from the perspective of uh, someone who is a, a researcher, I think I have sort of a parallel experience, and and I think it kind of. Um, you know, overlaps a little bit with the clinical piece as well, where, you know, I really feel like, yes, I'm the researcher, I am, you know, sort of the principal investigator, the, the, the scientific leader of the studies, but really, I am learning so much. From the communities that I work with, and really look to them for leadership, and really look to them to educate me, and um, and not in the way where we're putting responsibility on trans communities to educate, you know, their own providers or to educate, um, you know, non-trans people about their issues, but really looking to them as experts of their own experience, and um, also, you know, I really value. Um, you know, hiring research staff from within the community um, that cannot be stressed enough. I mean, as Graham mentioned, you know, the transgender nurse in the emergency room, you know, not that transgender people should be uh, solely responsible for educating, uh, you know, other people, but just having, you know, the presence of, you know, out transgender people at different levels of, of all of our systems um, really enriches all of us and enriches all of our systems, and um, and helping you know to create structures in which community can can really have an active voice in shaping healthcare settings, in shaping the research agenda, and so I really value elevating um, elevating the role of community in in shaping all of our systems and our approaches to our work.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Graham, and thank you, Jay, that was, that was beautiful. Um, thank you for your time, for your effort to provide us with this very informative um, overview and, and detailed insights into your work, into your interactions, into experiences as researcher, healthcare provider. And um, on behalf of the BMJ SDI podcast team, I thank you and all our colleagues for the efforts to improve the healthcare provision for transgender people and um, Jay, I say goodbye to you, enjoy your lovely
1: day. Thank and you, Fabiola. <laughs> <it> stops. <laughs> <I hope laughs> Thanks you for have. having me.
0: No, thank you. And Graham, thank you so much. Um, and I, I wish you a lovely day as well.
2: Lovely. Thank you very much for the opportunity.
0: We all f- thank you, our listeners, um, and um, hope you can follow the Jay on Twitter and Facebook. Stay safe and goodbye.